Welcome to Cultivating Conservation, a podcast navigating new ideas of what conservation means and how we really can promote change. My name's Megan, and for the past 10 years I've been working as a filmmaker, telling stories about the natural world, in particular stories about whales. And I found on so many occasions whilst discussing different issues that all these incredible people around me doing exceptional things were not comfortable calling themselves conservationists. I'm here to call you all out and to instigate informal chats with individuals from all backgrounds about what the term really means to them. Delving into what shaped their thoughts and how each navigate the ideas of true conservation in what can sometimes feel like a constantly changing and hopeless future. My hope is to nourish and grow conscious conversations to ultimately help save the planet. Incremental change leading to monumental change. And if listening to this inspires just one person to get involved in something they really care about, then I'll be happy. So, what does conservation mean to you? This week's episode is a really special one for me. The first question I usually ask people is, what is their earliest memory of loving something so much that they wanted to protect it? That light bulb moment, that spark of passion that led you to want to make a change in this world. For me, this moment was when I was about six years old and my mum sat me down to watch a film called Born Free, the story of Elsa the Lioness. My mother did warn me that I may cry and when I asked why, is it sad, she said no, you'll cry because you're happy. And I remember thinking, why would I cry out of happiness? And she was right, I was hysterical and that was my light bulb moment. For anyone that doesn't know, Born Free was a film made in 1966 based on the life of Joy and George Adamson, starring Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers. It tells the story of Elsa, the lioness, the first captive animal successfully rehabilitated and released back into the wild. As a result of making this film, in 1984, the actors Virginia, her husband Bill and their son Will founded the Born Free Foundation, which today is the leading organisation worldwide in matters of captivity, poaching exploitation, rehabilitation, and release. But it was Joy's story, Elsa's story, and Virginia's story that was the spark that led me to be the person that I am today. And still now, if I ever need comfort in knowing what can be achieved, all I need to do is pick up that book or put on that movie and the tears will flow and my drive becomes restored. Sadly, my rendition of this whilst on Zoom with Will Travis was embarrassing and awful due to my being so nervous. I've heard Will speak at many different events before and every time you can feel the collective goosebumps move like a wave through the audience. I can't wait for you all to listen to what he has to say. I have the the work of your, your mother and father to thank hugely for why I'm sitting in the place that I am today. Well, that's really that's really lovely news. <laughs> and yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your origin and how you got involved in conservation and how it's led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, you got involved by watching the film Born Free on a VHS given to you by your mother. And I, as a child, I was actually in Kenya when my mum and dad made the film Born Free. So way back in 1964-65. And the film was released in 1966. And it was a transformational experience for them. And even at the very young age that I was then, five years old, it did have, I think the overall experience, I probably didn't fully understand the the ramifications, but the overall experience of being in Kenya for nearly a year while the film was made, and I knew they were making a film which involved lions, which was kind of unusual and, and not what every 
acting couple did, uh, must have rubbed off on me. And they then went on and made a number of other films that involved wild animals. They made Ring of Bright Water, which was about otters. And they made a film called An Elephant Called Slowly, which was a fictional story about a couple, my mum and dad, who went to Kenya again and looked after a house for a friend. And the note that was left for them by the friend said, there are some unusual characters around. And they thought, does, does he mean that the house is characterful? And it turned out, no, there were some unusual characters, namely three elephants that lived around the property and used to come in and eat the garden. And making that film was transformational for a number of reasons, not least because the juvenile lead, the youngest elephant, two-year-old Poli Poli, meaning slowly in Swahili, was on her way, having been caught from the wild, on her way to the London Zoo. And she was a gift from the Kenya government of the day to the London Zoo. And my folks managed to sort of waylay her with the help of David and Daphne Sheldrick, the famous David and Daphne Sheldrick. She was in the film for about six weeks. And then at the end of filming, my mum and dad said to the government, look, could we buy her? Could she go to the Sheldricks? Could she be released into the wild? And the government said, yes, you can do that. But what we will need to do is catch another baby elephant from the wild because we've made a promise to the London Zoo. So rather than have the extraordinary trauma uh, imposed on an elephant family of having a calf taken away from them, and as you know, I'm sure very well, and your listeners will know, elephants are have en enormously strong emotional and social bonds. They are a matriarchal society led by uh, a wise old female who will know, you know, how to help them survive drought or famine or, you know, protect themselves from predators and things like that. And rather than have another family subjected to this, they said, oh, you know, all right. And so Poli Poli, not with their blessing, but with their deep concern, went to London Zoo. And my dad went to see her once she was at the zoo shortly after she arrived. And he realized that it was torture for him and for her, that this little animal that they had had such a glorious relationship with could no longer have that relationship, could no longer, you know, be with him. And when, you know, in the film, they were around the elephants the whole time, whereas he would come to the zoo, see her, and then he would leave. And how perplexing that must have been for Poli Poli. So he decided that the, he wouldn't go back again and she must form bonds with the other elephants at the zoo and with the keepers. And then 10 years later, or just over 10 years later, there was a message uh, from Daphne Sheldrick saying that she understood that things weren't working out well for Poli Poli at the zoo, that she'd become, quote, difficult to manage, that she was temperamental, that she was alone, that her companions had either been sent to other zoos or had died. And could we do something about it? Could mum and dad do something about it? So they thought, well, we'll just go and see. We've not been for, you know, well more than 10 years. So they went to the zoo. They had a photographer uh, with them. And Poli Poli, they called her name. She came down from the end of the enclosure, this really, frankly, dreadful elephant house, which just looks like 
something that you'd have to invade in order to take control of. It looked like some kind of fortress. And she reached out her trunk to their outstretched hands and reconnected with them. And they knew that they had to do something about the situation. So they, and then I joined them, started to campaign, started to call on the zoo to uh, allow Poli Poli to go to Africa. My mum found a reserve in Southern Africa that was willing to take her. But the zoo said that she would be poached, even though she'd broken off entirely one of her tusks. And she'd had a little stump, probably no more than about 15 centimeters on the other side. Nevertheless, the pressure was relentless. And eventually the zoo said, having claimed that they'd been looking for years, decided to send Poli Poli to their sister zoo, Whipsnade, which is just outside of London in Bedfordshire. The move was not a success. She was standing in her crate for a considerable period of time. She collapsed. She damaged a foot. The Royal Engineers were brought in to try and get her to her feet. Uh, there's a photograph of a Royal Engineer with a jack trying to get her up. There's another one of her with a steel cable round her neck, again, trying to sort of get her up. And she did get up. Apparently, she hobbled round for uh, about a week. And then they gave her a general anesthetic to check on what they described as a damaged foot, and then said that she didn't respond after the anesthetic and had lost the will to live. And so they euthanized her in the elephant house. That was the beginning of our journey, now nearly 40 years old, our journey, looking at what is going on in zoos, challenging what's going on in zoos and in other forms of captivity like circuses for exotic animals, particularly speaking out against elephants in zoos, which is 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 a nonsense, really. Whichever way you dice and slice it, elephants shouldn't be in zoos. And, and that's led us to today where, you know, thanks to public support and involvement and commitment and a fantastic team at Born Free here in the UK, our sister organization in the States, our colleagues in Kenya, in South Africa, in Ethiopia, in India, and in other parts of the world, you know, we now both campaign and practice compassionate conservation, individual animal rescue and care, education and community engagement, and we help support what we describe as wildlife-friendly policies to try and make the world a better place. So that's, I know that's taken more than a moment, but that is the journey. That is incredible, Will. How old do you think you were? And do you remember a moment in which you thought, oh, you know, this isn't just what mum and dad do. This is important and it's, and I want to be involved as much as they are. Well, after making Born Free, so I was still really young, my dad decided that although he was an actor and a producer, he wanted to be involved more and more in making documentary films. So he made a number of documentary films, one about a lion that came from a furniture store in the King's Road, being bought by two Australians, John and Ace, and from Harrods Pet Department, which was, it was legal at the time, kept in a furniture store. And long story short, Christian came to live in our garden here in, in Surrey, and then ended up going to Africa, to Kenya, and being rehabilitated by George Adamson. That was one of the stories he told. He worked as a producer and consultant with Oxford Scientific Films, making films about pollination, 
and carnivorous plants and all sorts of really interesting stuff. And I, as I got older, I sort of helped out occasionally. He made a film about the garden at Buckingham Palace, and I was there to lug the the tripod and some of the kit up onto the roof of Buckingham Palace. This was in a day when you could turn up at the gate with a little piece of paper which says, go to K-Gate, introduce yourself, and you'll be allowed in. Now, I'm going in with something which frankly could have contained anything because no one ever looked inside the boxes, climbed up onto the roof of Buckingham Palace with a film crew and filmed a garden party hosted by Her Majesty, Her late Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Philip, you know, it was kind of like a magical experience. But when Poli Poli was destroyed in on the 17th of October, 1983, we got a lot of letters from people saying, what are you going to do now? And what, what they were really saying was, is that it? Are you kind of, if you've done your campaign, are you going to go back to being documentary filmmakers and actors and all the rest of it? Or is there more? And we kind of sat there together, six of us actually, and we contemplated that question quite profoundly. And we decided that if there was a public appetite to question what was going on in zoos, then, you know, if not us, who? So we set up a tiny organization called Zoo Check. It was a little non-for-profit. We set it up with six pounds and we we declared to ourselves that if the public weren't interested and didn't support us, we probably would have not be around for very long. And indeed, the director of the zoo at the time, London Zoo, David Jones, described us in the press as a nine-day wonder. He's no longer the director of the zoo, and we've been here for 40 years, so it's an awful long nine days, David. And we, And we survived because the public were interested in the issue. And we brought with us and to us, we gathered around us real experts. We didn't know anything about wildlife, we, really. We, we certainly didn't know anything about zoos. We didn't know anything about stereotypic behavior or breeding success or failure or the challenges of reintroducing animals to the wild or whether zoo education has a function or is just a smokescreen. We didn't know anything about those things. But we were a bit like a lightning rod on a building. We were the conductor for that energy. And as I say, experts came to us and said, I also am concerned. Maybe I can help. People like Ian Redmond. And not that long afterwards, I mean, a few years later, but people like Paul Spong at Orca Lab, who challenged the zoo paradigm, wanted something different. And we were able to art help articulate those concerns. I've heard you speak a couple of times in public, Will, and one of the times was back in Whalefest in Brighton years and years ago. The live question and answer that was going on was about the ideas around captivity. And you spoke incredibly articulately about some of the ideas behind the reasons why zoos think it's okay to keep animals in captivity, the justification behind it. And I think the uh, the example you gave was something to do with the elephant enclosure at San Diego Zoo when they expanded it and what they were providing for the elephants versus what that money could have done for the wild population of elephants. And I remember it just... It was Los Angeles Zoo. And, and, and it's worth just quickly 
reviewing that information. So they had an old elephant enclosure and they wanted to expand it. They expanded it a very little. I think it went from around two acres to around three acres. And they have, as far as I'm aware, they have three elephants in there still. They have a male who has psychological problems and locomotion problems and foot problems, physical health issues. And they have two post-reproductive females. And I went to that enclosure at Los Angeles Zoo and I looked at it and I looked at what the elephants couldn't do. So I was standing with a, a an area of reeds and water in front of me, but they weren't really reeds. They were metal reeds that were electrified to prevent the elephants from getting to the water. I looked at the sparse number of trees in the enclosure and they were hot wired so that the elephants couldn't touch the trees. So from my perspective and in my opinion, it was a, a bleak, barren, desolate, stark, alien environment in which these animals were spending the rest of their lives. And not only that, but it had cost in excess of 40 million US dollars. And having by now spent many years working in the conservation space and scraping dollars and pounds together to support organizations like the Kenya Wildlife Service in their efforts to protect elephants in the wild in Kenya, I know what $40 million could do. It would be transformative in terms of uh, elephant conservation in the wild. In a country like Kenya, which in 1989 had seen its elephant population, its wild elephant population decimated down to just 16,500 animals, today, what are we, in 1999 to 30 plus years later, in a country that's seen its human population treble in that time, we have something like 35,000 elephants in Kenya. So they've more than doubled the wild population of elephants in Kenya against a backdrop of a trebling of the human population in Kenya. And no one can tell me that that isn't a conservation success. And of course, it brings with it lots of challenges. How much easier or how much more effective their job could have been if they had had $40 million more to spend on it, I can't even imagine. Yeah, that is incredible. What What do you think is the what do you think is the future for zoos in terms of born freeze future and ideas? Well, you know, the, the thing is that we sort of regard zoos as a rather static entity. In other words, you know, we have a, a picture in our mind's eye. When I say zoo, people will, will conjure up an image. It may be based on something they've actually seen. It may be something they've seen in a book. It may be based on a TV show. But it tends to be pretty static. You know, and, uh, the life of an elephant or, or any other animal in a zoo broadly is about birth, life, and death. The only difference somewhere along the line might be procreation. But the chances of that individual going back to a wild environment, fleetingly remote, the chances of that individual benefiting from a more a truly more interesting, environmentally rich living space are fleetingly remote. And so if you go to the zoo on a Monday and go and look at the giraffe, I'm not going to pick on elephants now, go to the giraffe enclosure and watch the giraffe and then come back on Tuesday 
and then frankly come back for another 363 days of the year, you will see broadly the same story unfold. There is not a lot of opportunity for the lives of those animals to be different from one day to the next. The seasons may change, but the existence remains static. That's not what the world is about. The world is dynamic and challenging. And so when you think about the invention, the creation of modern television, and then satellite television, and then email, and then the internet, and that, and now augmented reality, and virtual reality, and artificial intelligence, these technologies allow us to understand and in some respect interact with the natural world in a way that could not have even been dreamt about when zoos were created. London Zoo is coming up 200 years. But even post-Second World War, there was no sort of concept of what the future might hold beyond a bit more of the same and obviously some sort of incremental changes to animal management and care. Now we have a different way of learning about relating to and interacting with the natural world. And it isn't possible, of course, for all of us to go and, and see, I don't know, elephants in Africa, tigers in India. But maybe we have to re-educate ourselves to not have that anticipation, that expectation, because not all of us can go and see the pyramids in Egypt. Not all of us can go and see the Great Wall of China. Not all of us can go and see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. We have managed our expectations to accommodate those limitations. And to say that it is understandable that we don't all go and see the Great Pyramids, but it's acceptable for us to have polar bears in captivity in European cities or elephants in the you know, in enclosures in the United Kingdom or in, or in Scotland or in Northern Ireland or in France or in circuses in Germany or Italy. Why is the one acceptable and the other not? And, and it is managing our expectations that is so vitally important. And then, having understood that, redirecting our energy and our resources and our time and our effort to reversing biodiversity decline, slowing it, halting it, reversing it, addressing climate change, slowing it, halting it, reversing it, and far from being the most one of the most nature-depleted countries on the planet, I'd like to see the United Kingdom become one of the most biodiversity-rich, nature-rich countries on the planet. But we can only do that if government plays its role and we as society play our role as well. Of course. It's one of the biggest justifications I generally tend to hear when people talk about animals in zoos is the the you know, it being the only opportunity for large number of the public to see these animals. And then they then preface that with saying that, you know, if if the children don't get to see the lions, they won't grow up to love them and appreciate them and want to help them. But I think that's rubbish. Um, I think that's absolute, it is. absolute absolute rubbish. And I, and the great example of why it's rubbish is that we have a global constituency of I want to say hundreds of millions, but it's possibly billions of people who support and love and appreciate and respect the fact that we have great whales swimming in our oceans, and they will support policies to protect 
those great whales to end whaling programs through through institutions like the International Whaling Commission. You know, it's a massive pro-whale constituency, but there are no great whales in captivity. There are none. And the same goes for dinosaurs. I mean, I don't know how many... <laughs> Basically, every young kid in the world is obsessed with dinosaurs, and that leads to children growing up to become paleontologists and archaeologists and all those kind of things. And they've never had to go to a zoo to see a dinosaur, so I don't Very think true. it don't think it necessarily works like that. How do you find it? Must it must be an incredible weight to do the work that you do with Born Three and with conservation? How do you find? a sense of balance and a sense of hope when it comes to approaching hugely overwhelming tasks that Born Free are trying to take on? Well, we are only a, a relatively modest-sized organization, but firstly, I think it's really important to collaborate when you can, and sometimes with unusual with unusual partners. I mean, Damien Aspinall, for example, is a guy in the UK, and he has two zoos. But he plans to close them down. That's his his vision, is in 20 to 30 years, he won't have the zoos, that he will have rewilded all the animals that he possibly can. He won't have bred and, and sustained captive populations where that can be avoided. And he's planning right now to send his elephants, 12 or 13 elephants, to Kenya to be rewilded. So finding partners is super important. And... I take every win to be fuel that motivates and energizes me. So uh, in the early 1990s, we were involved in taking three of the last captive dolphins from dolphin area in the UK. We were given one of them. We were given two of them by the new owners of the Brighton Dolphinarium, Sea Life Centers, who have a policy of not having marine mammals in captivity. They said, would you take the two dolphins? And we said, yes, not really understanding what we were getting ourselves into. And then there was a further dolphin in Morecambe in the north of the United Kingdom, and he came to us as well. And we managed to raise the funds, and it was a lot of money at the time, to fly them to the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean. They entered in an, into a rehab program where they spent months learning how to be dolphins again. You know how you get a dolphin? A dolphin doesn't scavenge on dead, on dead fish. A dolphin catches live fish. So how do, you get a dolf, how do you get a dolphin to eat dead fish? Well, the late vet, another Jones, said what you do is you drain the pool to a few feet of water, you grab the dolphin, you shove dead fish down its throat, and then you float it again. And you just keep on doing that until the, until the animal gives up, just gives up, and will eat, dead, will eat dead fish from then onwards, because there's no alternative. Well, now think about how you have to reverse that process, how you have to train, retrain dolphins to, to want to use energy, to catch fish, because that's what they're going to have to do if you release them back into the wild. So it takes a long time and it takes real dedication. But we did that. And two things. Firstly, I had the captive dolphin industry after me saying, you're depriving the children of the United Kingdom of the extraordinary opportunity of going to see these amazing creatures perform in dolphin area. And they'll be really unhappy, the children. 
I didn't get one letter, not one letter from one child saying, you've deprived me. I got lots of letters and pictures and cards and drawings and paintings from kids showing dolphins swimming free in the ocean. So that tells me where the children were at. And even today, the second thing is I get people who come up to me at events, and I was at an event in London last week, and they come up and they say, the reason I got into this, it's a little bit, bit like your story, Megan, it was that VHS tape of Born Free that got you on your path. And people come up and say, it was that, that dolphin project that you did, where you took three of the last dolphins and you released them into the wild. That's why I am a campaigner. That's why I am a marine biologist. That's why I'm part of this movement. And gosh, there's nothing that puts the energy back into your soul like having someone say, I was inspired by something that I had a small part in. I think the work that Born Free has done and, and is doing is is incredible. What do you think are the what do you think are the biggest changes that you've seen in the forty years that you've been working with Born Free? Some of the greatest achievements that you you feel that they have done outside of the dolphins the dolphins in the Turks and Caicos is an incredible example, of course. Well, uh, there's been, I, I mean, as I said before, I definitely have the most extraordinary and, and the, the team has not been static. I mean, we've all, we've all grown older in these 40 years. Some people have moved on to different jobs, but I've been blessed, Born Free has been blessed by having at any given point in time, an extraordinary team of people. There's about 150 of us now in different places around the world and, you know, all committed to the mission. So in Specific activities, well, there are 3,000, 3,500 zoos in the European Union. I know that the UK, in my opinion, sadly, is no longer part of the European Union, but all those zoos have to be licensed. That allows campaigners in all member states to have a voice when they see something going wrong, to have a an authority that they can complain to, that they can point out deficiencies to, that they can call for improved standards to, and that the European Zoos Directive, which requires all zoos to be licensed, was pretty much down to us and the research that we did and the case that we presented to the European Commission. So I'm, I am genuinely very thankful that that work was done. We were part of the movement to end the international ivory trade in 1989. There was an incredible amount of work that went into that. I remember driving a petition, paper petition, this was before email, paper petition of 620,000 names in the back of a of an estate car a station wagon to, to Lausanne in Switzerland as part of our attempts to persuade the parties to the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species to pass an international ivory trade ban. We've rescued dozens of animals, hundreds of animals from miserable captive conditions in zoos and circuses. We have sanctuaries in South Africa with our friends at Shamwari in Ethiopia, outside of the capital Addis Ababa. We have a primate rescue center in the United States, 
where in some states it's still possible to keep primates as pets and only you know kind of after the fact do people realize what an incredibly stupid idea that is and dangerous idea the animal suffers but people can get very badly injured by primates so you find primates with their teeth filed down some of the other things like the captive the Big Cap Public Safety Act in the United States. That's brand new legislation. It was passed by President Biden 10 months ago. This was following on from the Ferrari that arose around the TV series Tiger King. But we'd written that draft legislation in 2008. We were at the forefront of the movement to, to bring about a change in legislation to prevent the private ownership of big cats. And only in the last few days, the first prosecution has been successfully achieved of two people who went to a, a place where they sold a margay, which is a mid middle-sized wildcat, and were attempting to buy a jaguar cub. And they've been arrested, convicted, and they face five years, up to five years in, in prison and a $20,000 fine. That is going to, that legislation is going to send shockwaves through those who think it's okay to massage their ego by having big wild cats as pets. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things that I'm seeing as a common thread through everything you've talked about, Will, and even through the life that your mother and father led to setting up Born Free is really about having a voice and having a voice for the species that don't have a voice. And I wonder if you had any thoughts and feelings towards how other people can get involved in using their own voice to help in the same way that your parents and yourself have done with Born Free, because not everyone has the the access to be working for great organizations like yours and to become conservationists. But that's part of the whole reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to sort of allow everyone to understand that we're all conservationists and it's about, you know, finding your community and finding your voice. And if you had any inspiration for people that want to get involved in conservation, what yeah. kind of advice would you have for them? Well, firstly, I, I would say I, I use the expression compassionate conservation, and I use it very specifically because I think sometimes, perhaps years ago, conservation was a sort of a game of numbers. It was like, well, how many do we have of this species? How many are being illegally killed? Is the, Or how many are being harvested, if you want to put it that way? Is it sustainable? And so there was lots of sort of numerical work, scientific work, um, some of it very valid, but some of it desensitized us to the fact that when we're talking about elephants or other um, big cats that are shot as trophies, etc., we're talking about individuals, individuals that have feelings that we can only describe in human terms because we can't describe it any other way. And if anyone's, anyone says, well, you're just a, you know, you're too anthropomorphic, I'm sorry, I have, make no excuse. I don't have another language to describe what I believe to be the case when it comes to so many species. And the more research we do, there's a sort of research that Paul 
Spong and Helena do with Orca, that Jane Goodall has done with chimpanzees, that Diane Fossey did with gorillas, that Baruti Galdikas does, does with orangutans, that Cynthia Moss and Winnie Kiiru and Nora and Katito do with elephants in the wild, that Douglas Hamilton's do. The more research we do, the more like us species are, not the less like us. We we begin just a little bit to understand their language, their body language, their social language, and sometimes their literally their dialect. And so I think it's um it's incredibly important to describe conservation as compassionate conservation because what that means is that you have to take into account the individual nature of the individual animal in your conservation efforts. And you can't just say, well, killing 10 but saving 100 is okay. Because what about the 10? And what happens to their families or to their social units or to their groupings or their partners or their cubs or their offspring, children, whatever you want to describe it as? So I think that's really important. The second thing to your point is the worst thing you can do is, do, is to say nothing is to be passive. And the great hope that I see is that so many people, and particularly young people, are sick of being passive and waiting for their turn. They see the meteoric rate of decline in biodiversity and the threat that humans are to the planet that we all need to survive on. And they are they are making their voice known. Now, sometimes they make it known in ways that society finds uncomfortable, such as, you know, extinction rebellion or climate strike. But they are prepared to forfeit something that they actually really value, such as their Friday in school, to go on climate strike and make sure that their voice is not ignored. And so I've, I'm pretty inspired by all of that. And I went to an event in London on the 28th of September in this year, 2023. It was about a thousand people. It was outside of the offices of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, a government department that's responsible for those particular issues. And a whole raft of different organizations came along. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the Wildlife Trusts, WWF, Born Free, Well and Dolphin Conservation. There must have been 40 or 50 organizations in the street outside of DEFRA, a thousand people, as I say. There must have been 40 or 50 speeches that day, ending with uh, the naturalist Chris Packham kind of helping tie the threads together. And there were two things that I take home from that. Lots of young people, by the way. Two things. Firstly, that, so the thing I realized was that the people in the, of, the, people in the offices behind me, the people working at DEFRA, had almost certainly gone into their job, had taken the job because they wanted to make the world a better place. So they were not our enemy. They were our friends. And that the policies that they were being compelled to deliver on were the problem. So we need much better policies. We need policies that are ambitious, 
that accelerate the pace of positive change, not slow it down, that set ambitious targets for us all to adhere to. And the second point that I wanted to make at that particular event, which I, I did say at the end of my speech, I said, I said, I'm surrounded in this street by experts. There's all sorts of experts from different organizations standing in front of me. My question is, why are we in the street? Why are we not sitting around a table with our friends at DEFRA working together to restore nature, to fight climate change, to make that better world that we all want to see? Why are we separated in this really artificial way? And I called for the establishment of a nature security council, not a national security council, which is more familiar to people, because that's all about I don't know, war, fighting, conflict. I want a nature security council which brings in the best talents, which brings in the best people, which brings in those who can tell the right stories, motivate the public, offer hope above everything else, offer hope that this isn't the end of humanity on the planet, which at least some people, and I happen to be one of them, think that if we don't get this right within the next 15, 12, 15 years, then the chances of us reversing the fortunes of the planet and every life form that lives on it are bleak. And we'll go, we will go at some stage, and other life will emerge as the preeminent species perhaps on the planet. Just won't be us. Thank you so much. I wish I could have I wish I could have been there to have uh, to have to have heard that, but yeah, it was I think a powerful event. I can imagine. So I just want to say thank you so much for everything that you and Born Free are doing, and also thank you so much to incredible work that your mum and dad have done for did for so many years. And I did meet your mum once at Whalefest. I think it was on the first year of Whalefest, and we had a we had a great chat about Paul and Helena and about Orca Lab and the story of Springer, which is a, a probably a story for another day. I want Whalefest to come back. By the way, I I think Whalefest yeah. in some incarnation. What a great event! Just I will um... I will. I'll be sure to send the audio clip of you saying that to to Ian and Dylan and uh, try and see if we can get the gang back together. <laughs> it would be so good because I think the time is right now and we need to have positive experiences, not not always negative. And that was the most fantastic positive experience, one of the best days I can remember spending kind of hugged by a thousand people in the arms of an event that made everyone feel that there was a chance. And there really there really is and that's part of one of the reasons why I wanted to make this podcast was uh, remembering here you speak and and so many other conversations that I've had with different people and just wanting to try and spread some of that hope and positivity around but I'd really love it if you could pass on to your mother in some way the impact that she has had on my life and the impact that Born Free has had on my life and the life that I now lead and the work that I do with Orcolab is all all because of that one viewing of Born Free back in 1994, I guess it would have been. Right. Well, I'm going to see her in about, well, as soon as we're finished here, actually, and I will pass on your 
your message and I know that she will be chuffed to to feel and she's 92 now but she's still active she's still on our board and she'll be chuffed to learn uh, that it was something that got you going and I and I will say that I, I really want to just pay tribute to all of the people who support Born Free in whatever way they do whether it's just with words or whether they support us in some other way and my amazing team all around the world without whom you know I would just be a lone voice and we are now an amplified voice punching above our weight and I hope bringing a sense of optimism against a very dark background a sense of optimism to people's lives because otherwise we just exist we don't really live you're so right will i think that's a perfect way to this end this conversation on conservation thank you so much for your time um pleasure yeah i really really appreciate it pleasure do stay in touch Wow, what an incredible chat that was, Um, even if my participation was primarily to say things like, wow, that's amazing. Um, I was a little bit starstruck, to be honest. Um, I also want to apologise for the audio on that one. I am still learning about all of this, and this was my first remote recording between Canada and the UK. I urge you all to head over to the Born Free Foundation's website and learn all about the incredible work that they're doing and how you can get involved. Thank you so much for listening to this episode got some thoughts and feelings let's keep this conversation going please do get in touch rate subscribe and comment to help other people find this podcast and let's keep cultivating conservation